I invite you this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. The thought occurred to me this morning that there are many folks who treat Romans 9 through 11 as kind of a distinct, separate section within Romans. And surely it is. You can see that Romans 9 through 11 is dealing with one particular issue, and that is God's covenant relationship with Israel, with his chosen people. But I was thinking about this morning the fact that in, in a very important way, Romans 9 through 11 fits integrally into the argument of Romans as a whole. Because I was thinking about the fact that really the argument of Romans as a whole is that we cannot save ourselves. That seems to be Paul's overriding thought in Romans, is we cannot save ourselves. And so going all the way back to chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Romans, Paul was talking about the fact that it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter what what ethnicity you come from. It doesn't matter what family you come from. It doesn't matter if you have circumcision. It doesn't matter if you have the law. It doesn't matter if you've been a part of Israel as as an exterior people. He's been saying that from the very beginning of Romans. And in, in the earlier part of Romans, what was his essential argument? His essential argument was that it is not by works that we are saved, but it is by grace, isn't it? So it's not by works, not, nothing that we can do to earn salvation, nothing that we can do to merit it. We are not saved out of our own efforts. We are saved by the grace of God. And the means, the instrumental means, if you will, by which we are justified is faith, saving faith. So it is not of works, but him who believes in Jesus Christ is saved. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about Romans 9 through 11, and, and especially in Romans 9, basically what Paul is showing us in Romans 9 is really much the same principle that that we cannot save ourselves, and for the Israelites, it does not matter what family you come from or what what nation you come from. That is not how you are saved. You are saved by the grace of God. And what Paul is doing in Romans 9 is really just taking it to the next level and, and showing us in a little bit deeper way how it is that we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that is through unconditional election, and a divine loving call of God. So it fits very much within what Paul has been doing all along in Romans. If you remember back in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul had said that a true Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but one who is one inwardly. In other words, what matters is not circumcision of the flesh, which the Jews could claim, but circumcision of the heart, which is a spiritual act of God. 
And so it's not what we are or what we can do or what we can achieve. It's the grace of God. And the grace that God gives in salvation is a grace that flows from God himself. Out of his own will, out of his own desire to love, out of his own will to show mercy. And it has absolutely nothing to do with us. With our worthiness with anything that we have done, are doing, or will do. It is all about God and His grace. And so Paul has been walking us through this argument in chapter 9, showing us that that Israel as a whole, as a collective national people, Israel as a whole, the whole nation is not going to be eternally saved. And that was never God's purpose from the beginning. He shows us that from the beginning, God's operating principle has always been that there is an Israel within an Israel. There is a spiritual Israel within the larger national or ethnic Israel. How does that work? He showed us that works out not by works, not by merit, not by what we deserve because of who our parents are, Not because of any choices that we've made, but it works out in accordance with the principle of God's gracious election. That's the way it works out. And then he was dealing with certain arguments in verses 14 through 18 and then in verses 19 through 23. In 14 through 18, he was dealing with the argument of basically that's not fair. Isn't that unjust? If if God is is drawing people to himself and God is saving people out of his own sovereign will, then isn't that unjust? And basically Paul is arguing in that section of Romans, no, it is not unjust at all because true justice, what is fair would be we all deserve condemnation. If we can understand that thought, then we can understand what Paul is teaching us in Romans 9. That, that what we all deserve, every single human being who is a child of Adam and Eve, a descendant of Adam and Eve, every single human being deserves eternal judgment. If we can grasp that, then we can grasp the unmerited, unearned, gracious, sovereign election of God. Because... We all, by default, deserve judgment. But God, in grace, shows mercy to some to whom he wills. But isn't that unfair? Shouldn't God show mercy to all? Well, if he did, then that would mean that we would deserve it. Right? If there is some obligation on the part of God to show mercy to all, then that means that it is owed that we deserve it. In order for mercy to be mercy and for grace to be grace, there can be no obligations on God to show it. That's what grace is. And so Paul says of God in Romans 9 verse 15, that a fundamental characteristic of who God is, is his right to show mercy and compassion to whom he wills. 
That is a fundamental aspect of who God is as creator, as Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so he has within his right as God, as the Lord of Israel, to show mercy to whom he wills and even to harden whom he wills. And then he addresses another objection beginning in verse 19. Basically, assuming then this principle of sovereign election, Paul anticipates an objection. And that objection being, well, if if God is sovereign and he calls and he elects, then why does God still blame us for what we do? And basically coming at it from kind of a fatalistic viewpoint of if God is sovereign, then that means we have no choice in anything. And so therefore God shouldn't blame us for what we do. But that's not, the Bible doesn't operate from a perspective of fatalism. The Bible doesn't operate from a perspective of God controls everything, therefore we have no responsibility in it. The Bible does not operate from that perspective. The Bible operates from a perspective of full divine sovereignty, but also full human accountability for the actions that we choose and do. And I think a great illustration of that comes from Luke chapter 22, where Luke is describing the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot. And Luke records that Jesus was handed over by Judas Iscariot by the predetermined counsel of God. So part of predetermined, foreordained counsel of God their sovereignty, but then Luke goes on to say, but woe to him by whom he is betrayed. Meaning woe, judgment to the one who betrays him. Meaning that Judas, even though he is fulfilling the sovereign plan of God in the betrayal of Jesus the Messiah, he still holds full accountability and responsibility for his actions. And he'll be judged for them. So in a way that I cannot fully humanly explain God is fully sovereign and everything that he does in his world is according to his purpose and will Ephesians one by which he works out everything according to the purpose of his own will. So everything fits in with that divine will of God. But yet at the same time, I do what I want to do and you do what you want to do. And Pharaoh does what he wants to do. And Joseph's brothers do what they want to do in being unkind and mean to him and Pharaoh in being hard-hearted and and, um, mercilessly cruel to the Israelites, all of that, they're just doing what they want to do. And yet somehow in a way that I can't fully explain that is fully working out God's purposes that he has known and predetermined from before the creation of the world. And so Paul says, you can't say to God, You can't hold me responsible if you're sovereign. And basically his argument is, can the created thing say anything back in argument or in rebellion to the creator? The thing that is made cannot talk back to the one who who made it. Why did you make me like this? And so essentially Paul is defending the, the creative right of God to do what he wills to do with his world. 
And a part of that creative right of God to do what he wants to do with his world is to judge some and to show mercy to others. Those who receive judgment are fully worthy of receiving that judgment, aren't they? Because all of us are. And those who receive mercy are fully unworthy of receiving that mercy. But they receive it by the loving, gracious call of God. And so in verse 23, Paul says, what if God did this? That is, what if God is is operating by this principle of sovereign election so as to not only judge those who are wicked and deservedly wicked and deserve to be judged, and what if against that backdrop, God presents against that backdrop the glorious light of his mercy and grace? And he did this in order to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. God desired to show amazing grace to those who are unworthy. And he used the backdrop of deserved judgment to magnify his grace. And so in the judgment of sinners and in mercy shown to sinners, all of the aspects of God's glorious character are on display. His justice and righteousness and holiness are on display in the judgment of sinners and his love, mercy, and grace are on display in the salvation of sinners. And so the full character and attribute of God is on display. And now we come to verse 24. And now Paul is taking this argument, which in many ways has been kind of theoretical, going all the way back to verse number 6, where he said, God's word has not failed. There's an Israel within an Israel, and then he walks through this argument And he uses Old Testament biblical examples. And then in verses 14 through 23, he is dealing with objections, somewhat uh, dealing with kind of a hypothetical debate partner, if you will. And so a lot of it has been theoretical. But now in verse number 24, he turns it to something very personal. And reminds us and shows us in this that everything that he has been saying is not just in the abstract. Everything that he has been saying about Ishmael and Isaac and and Jacob and Esau and about Pharaoh and, and about, you know, what about this argument? What about that argument? Now in verse 24, he's showing us that's not just abstract hypothetical thought. That is dealing with reality and specifically the reality of who we are in Christ. Because in verse 24, he says even us whom he also called. Who who is he referring to there? Who is the even us? It goes back to verse 23. Those whom God, the objects of his mercy, whom God had prepared in advance for glory. So these, these vessels of God that he desired to show mercy to, Those objects of mercy, those aren't just theoretical, hypothetical objects of mercy, Paul is saying. That's us. We are the objects of God's mercy that he has prepared in advance for glory. Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. 
And then he quotes extensively from the Old Testament to support what he's saying here. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you that we can come to your word today. Give us your insight, your wisdom. May your spirit teach us. And Lord, may we stand back and marvel at your grace shown to us who don't deserve it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What Paul reveals to us in verse number 24 is that in his loving sovereignty, God is calling and creating a spiritual family out of all the families of the earth. In his loving sovereignty, God is calling and creating a spiritual family out of all of the families of the earth. What is he saying here? What Paul has been arguing all along in Romans 9 is that it does not matter what nation you come from. It does not matter who your parents were. It does not matter whether or not you can claim Abraham as your ancestor. Having Abraham as your ancestor, being a part of ethnic Israel, that is not a guarantee, it's not a birthright, if you will, that you have eternal salvation. Because eternal salvation comes by grace through faith. And so what God is doing, Paul is kind of pulling back the curtains of God's plan here. What God is doing is he is not calling one nation, and therefore by ethnicity or by descent, that nation and that nation only is going to be his eternal spiritual people. That's not what God's doing. What God is doing is he is calling a spiritual people, a new family, if you will, And this new family is going to be comprised of people from all of the nations and families in the world. So he says, not only of the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, out of the Jews, out of the Israelites who could claim their Abrahamic ancestry, he is calling out a people. An Israel within an Israel. He's calling out a spiritual Israel within the physical ethnic Israel. And not only for them, but also from the Gentile world as well. He is calling out of all of the masses of the Gentile non-Israelite world. He is calling out a people for himself. And he is drawing them together into one body in Christ. One family of children out of all the families of the world. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, a holy nation out of all the nations of the earth. 
And so he is drawing together this new people. Jesus himself told us that he was going to do this. When Jesus came, he came to Israel. He preached to Israel. Pretty much all of his ministry was to Israel. He died in Jerusalem, but his ministry was not limited to Israelites, to Jews. His ministry was to be a universal ministry. And we even see hints of it in Jesus' ministry where he interacted with Gentiles and where he would say of Gentiles, I've not seen such great faith, no, not even in Israel. And then we see Jesus saying something in John chapter 10 where he's talking about himself being the good shepherd and he makes the statement, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must go out and reach them also so that there will be one fold and one shepherd. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Gentiles. There is the fold of Israel, but he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, not of the Israelite fold. I must go out and reach them and bring them in, and then there will be one fold, one shepherd. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 and 3 that we read earlier in the service, is that you Gentiles who are far off, you who are estranged, cut off from citizenship in Israel, God has brought you near, and now he has brought you near and he has made you one with Israelites, Israelites and Gentiles, believers in Jesus Christ, one new family, one new humanity. In essence, what God is doing is he is creating a new race of people out of all the races of the earth. He's calling a new nation of people out of all the nations of the earth, a new family of people out of all the families of the earth. That is his plan. And he is calling people and creating this spiritual family by divine grace. The call that is mentioned here is a call that we've seen in Romans already, and it is an effectual call. It is a call that creates and accomplishes its purpose. It is an effectual call in that it draws people to him and creates in them new spiritual life and saving faith. And they believe and are justified. So in his loving sovereignty, God is calling and creating a spiritual family out of all of the families of the earth. And Paul has said this earlier in Romans 2, in Romans 3.29, he said this, Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. And so he is drawing one new family out of all the families of the earth. And that's a part of his divine plan from the very beginning. To Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I'm choosing you, I'm going to bless you, and through you, you are going to bless all the families of the earth. It's been God's plan all along. Secondly, what Paul reveals to us in this passage, and he does this by quoting from Hosea, he he teaches us that in his loving sovereignty, God is showing mercy to those who don't deserve mercy and weren't expected to receive mercy. God, in his loving sovereignty, is showing mercy to those who don't deserve mercy and weren't expected to receive mercy. Who's that? The Gentiles. The Gentiles don't deserve God's mercy And they were the last ones on the list that you would expect to receive God's mercy. And so he quotes from Hosea, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Hosea. And he says, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one 
who is not my loved one. In other words, someone who is outside, God is going to bring in. Someone who is not my family, I'm going to call my family. Someone who is not my child, I'm going to call my child. And quoting again from Hosea in verse 26, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. In other words, Hosea is about God showing mercy to those who don't deserve it and to those who are not expected to receive it. And now here's the amazing thing is that in the original context of Hosea, that was written to Israel. That was written to Israel and specifically to the northern 10 tribes of Israel who had been in rebellion and apostasy for generations. And they were on the verge of being judged by God. And in fact, Hosea reveals through his prophecy that Israel will be judged by God. And the means of that judgment was going to be the nation of Assyria. Assyria was going to come and conquer Israel, was going to take them into captivity, and Israel was going to be scattered among the nations. But then, as we often see in the prophets, there is not only messages of judgment, but there's also glimpses of light and of hope. And as a part of that prophecy of hope and of restoration, Hosea says to the Israelite people, even though you had been rejected by God and were not his people, He's going to call you his people again. So to those who didn't deserve mercy, to those who really shouldn't expect to receive mercy, God will show it once again. And he will call you his people. And now in Romans 9, Paul takes that principle. In in Hosea, it's talking to, to Israel. But Paul is drawing from that principle. What's the principle? The principle is God showing mercy to those who don't deserve to receive it. And showing mercy to those who really shouldn't be expectant of receiving it. And in Paul's day, and from an Israelite mind, the last people who should expect to receive mercy from God was the Gentile world. But Paul is saying... God is going to take those who were not his people and going to make them his people. To those who didn't deserve it, to those who who shouldn't expect to receive mercy, God's going to show it to them in abundant, lavish grace. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, he also quotes from Hosea. And he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so God showed mercy to the Gentiles, unworthy, undeserving, and he brought them into the family of God. Thirdly, Paul shows us in this passage, and he does this by quoting from Isaiah, that in his loving sovereignty, God is showing mercy to only a remnant of those who thought they deserved mercy. God is showing mercy to only a remnant of those who thought they deserved mercy. Who's that referring to? Israel. Israel, the Israelite people. 
You can see this in Jesus' day as well as in Paul's, that there was a, an expectation among many in Israel that they were God's people and they were destined to the kingdom and eternal salvation just by virtue of the fact that they were Israelites and descendants of Abraham. And what Paul is showing them by quoting from Isaiah is, no, God is saving a remnant out of Israel. God is saving an Israel out of Israel. He's saving an Israel within Israel. Not just because you're a descendant of Abraham, but because he is saving some out of Israel by his grace. And he goes back to historical precedent in which God did the very same thing to Israel before. In the fall of Jerusalem and in the fall to Babylon. And so he quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea. That's language reminiscent of Abraham, isn't it? God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants so numerous, they'll be like the sand on the seashore. And Isaiah says, though that is true, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Means when God's judgment falls, and in his context, it was the fall to the Babylonians. When God's judgment comes, only a remnant, a small leftovers, if you will, will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. And then he says again, verse 29, It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. Now, the way I stated this point, this third point, in his loving sovereignty, God is showing mercy to a remnant of those who thought they deserved mercy. And you might think, how is it mercy to show mercy to only a sum and not to all? Well, verse 29 in this quotation from Isaiah shows us why it's mercy. Because what did they deserve? He says they deserved to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. What was left of Sodom and Gomorrah? Nothing. Lot and his two daughters were saved. That's it. And what Isaiah is saying in that context and what Paul is alluding to here as well is that the nation of Israel at that time, as well as the nation of Israel in Paul's day, they deserve judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah. And you think, wow, that's harsh that Israel deserves a judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah. But yet Jesus said the same thing. Looking at towns in which Jesus had ministered in, Bethsaida, Chorazin, he says of them, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and for Gomorrah than for you. Why? Because you had the Messiah and you rejected him. You had prophets and you rejected them. Sodom and Gomorrah never had prophets. They never had the Messiah. They never had the miracles of Jesus performed in them. 
Jesus says, For if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus says, the Israel of his day, the unbelieving, rebellious Israel of his day was worthy of the judgment and even worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. And Paul is saying here, drawing from Isaiah, that unbelieving Israel is worthy of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why it's mercy that a remnant is saved. Again, when you start with the fundamental reality of the holiness of God and our disobedience and rebellion against him and our deserving judgment because of our rebellion against God, when you start with that fundamental principle, anything else that God does for us is mercy. And so what Paul is saying is, those who are expected to all be saved, the Israelites, he's drawing out a remnant. In other words, he's working contrary to expectation, isn't he? Out of all this great company of Israel, he's saving a remnant. He's working contrary to expectation. And out of the Gentiles, who, didn't des- who were thought to not deserve any mercy at all, he is saving great numbers of them. He's working contrary to expectation. And in doing this, in saving a remnant of those who thought they deserved it, and in saving many who didn't think they deserved it, God in his grace is drawing together one new family of believers out of all the earth. And that's God's grace. It's the mercy of God. And at the end of Romans 11, Paul steps back and says, how all the depths of the wisdom of God. How marvelous his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. This is God at work in history, in his plan of saving a people. And Paul is revealing to us that it is all out of the will of God and is all out of divine grace. And we as Gentiles should stand back in awe and wonder and gratitude that we have been called into this family. And that we can be a part of this family of God. And we can call Abraham our father. Not by DNA, but by faith. Abraham is our father. And we are a part of the family of God. And so, may God be praised because of his loving, merciful, sovereign grace. Let's bow in prayer together. Our father, we are so grateful that we who were far off, we who were not natural born descendants of Abraham, we Gentiles who were cut off from Israel, aliens and strangers in this world, that God, you brought us in. You gave us new life, you called us to yourself. You invited us into your family and into the one fold under the one shepherd, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, help us to always be grateful for what you have done for us. Help us to live our lives as an expression of that gratitude. 
as we interact with other people, Lord, as we interact with unbelievers, with our coworkers, with maybe members of our family, our neighbors. Lord, help us to remember this principle that, that God, you, you call people by grace who don't deserve it. You call people by grace who don't look like they're deserving of it or, or even expecting of receiving it. And yet, Lord, you call them. And so, Lord, use us as your instruments of grace as you call people to yourself. Lord, help us to never look at someone and think uh, they're beyond the reach of your grace or, or they're, they're too outside the bounds of your mercy because, Lord, there is none too far, too far lost that you cannot save. Because, Lord, you're in the business of saving the unworthy and saving those who, who we might not even expect to be saved. We thank you, Lord, for your undeserved grace and for the fact that we are part of the family of God. Lord, use us and bless us. May we live for you, Lord, and may we always be grateful for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.